Welcome to High Noon, where we discuss controversial subjects with interesting people and where I always mess up my own tagline. Um, <laughs> as, as always, at the end of the month, um, we have Emily Jashinsky here. Uh, she is the culture editor over at The Federalist. She is uh, teaching intrepid young journalists how to uh, mess with the, the narrative um, over at Young America's Foundation. And of course, she is a fellow with us, Independent Women's Forum. Um, so she is just everywhere. And now I think you have a you have a Friday show on what used to be the Rising, right? It's sort of a separate thing now, but it's on Fridays with Ryan Grimm and you. You want to say right. a little bit about that? It's just called Rising Fridays. It's a it's a fun little Friday edition of uh, Rising with Ryan and myself because we have so much fun together. We thought we would uh, close the week off uh, having extra fun. Well, last last month we talked about the rise of the Chomsky, right? So I guess uh, maybe I should have a little more sympathy for Ryan Grimm these days. But um, <laughs> inside joke, I, I highly recommend actually that you go and, and listen to Emily and Ryan. Uh, Ryan comes from the left, I would say the Chomsky left in, in many ways. Um, Emily comes from the populist or, you know, at least quasi populist, right? Um, and they find some things to agree on and many things to disagree on. And uh, they're, they're a great pair. So I, I highly recommend that over on at the Hill. Um, but Emily, something big has happened since the last time we did this. And actually, since literally yesterday, we're recording on uh, on Tuesday morning. And uh, yesterday, the news came through that, in fact, Elon Musk has um, made an offer and his offer has been accepted. Elon Musk is probably going to be the next uh, owner of Twitter. What do you think about that? Well, I'm, I, I like to think about this in terms of actually what you talk about a lot, which is uh, institutional capture, um, because it sort of seems to be it's turning that on its head, right? Like, is there a way with enough sort of bold people with money and resources um, that you can just by showing other people, it's okay to take over these institutions and govern them by our, our sort of older, better standards. That would be neutrality, right? Our concept of like, you know, it, it's a private company. It, it doesn't have to be subject to the First Amendment, but maybe the, the standards that we have used in the First Amendment uh, have, have litigated through the court system um, and our interpretation of the First Amendment is the best way to, to sort of govern the boundaries of acceptable speech. Um, and so it, it's interesting to see if somebody can just say, it's okay to do this. In fact, it's better to do this. Um, you know, my personal opinion is that Twitter shouldn't exist, period. But if Elon Musk, Musk ex insists on keeping it alive, um, I actually think he could model for the rest of Silicon Valley a much, much better way of doing business just by saying, hey, it's okay. It's okay to, uh, you know, have a First Amendment free speech standard. It's okay to make your algorithm public. It's okay to tell the woke employees no. Uh, so we'll see. But I, I think there's reason to be hopeful about it. Yeah, I, I actually, um, I was so cynical that I was certain there was going to be some way to stop this deal, right? That yes. some hedge fund um, was going to bid some outrageous amount of money and that Elon Musk, even being the wealthiest man in the world, was going to be like, this is completely not worth it. Um, or or that like some bylaw would be uh, invented. I still think probably he uh, will find himself in the crosshairs and his other companies in the crosshairs of, of agency regulation. Um, and, and he's definitely going to have a big target painted on his back after doing this. But I was so cynical. I thought it, there's no way that, that this is going to happen. Like something, some institutional force is going to come in and prevent this from happening. Um, and I, I say that not because I think Elon Musk is like sort of 
quote unquote, our team, right? I think he, he has his own visions and ideas and some of them um, are very utopian, like much of Silicon Valley. Um, dystopian. Yeah, I mean, that would be from my yours and mine perspective. Yeah, definitely dystopian. So um, I, I'm not I'm not naive. I don't think he's kind of totally on our team or anything like that. But as you said, he he has promised to restore free speech or some semblance of free speech to a major um, social platform, um, and and that is a threat, right? That is a threat to the regime because there's a reason that they um, they ban people. Uh, who, in their view, or, or the recent Obama thing, right, um, are spreading disinformation, right? Mm. Um, it's because they want to be able to police the boundaries uh, of the Overton window and of discourse um, in a way they want to replace the the old power of the media when there were three channels, right? They want to get rid of the Wild West internet. Um, so I, I don't know, does this make you, does this make you slightly more hopeful? Um, Cause I actually found myself as, as the queen of the pessimist. still, <laughs> I, I really didn't think this would happen. I didn't think it would happen. And it has, or at least apparently has, um, they are reporting on it uh, in the New York post and elsewhere. Um, Twitter itself is confirming that they're accepting the bid. I think there are still some closing elements to this bid. So there are still places for things to go wrong, but I'm, I'm really, um, I'm, I'm just frankly shocked that, it was allowed to happen. I'm surprised by that too. Um, but it, it goes to show that he he made an offer to Twitter that is ridiculous, um, in in my opinion, but also sort of in the like mathematical valuation of what Twitter really is is worth. It's interesting because uh, this was in Sarah Fisher's newsletter for Axios this morning. She was saying actually, people are now thinking. Twitter is probably more valuable than what its its size and its profits are, right? Because there's so much power in controlling speech, controlling culture, controlling po- politics just by owning Twitter. So it might not be super profitable, um, but it's extremely powerful. And those two things don't necessarily always go hand in hand. So the value is a little different. But I agree with you. I mean, I think I think it's a step in the right direction. Just, just to jump in for one moment. Yeah. The comparison on exactly what you just said, I think. Um, that I heard was Bezos buying the Washington Post, right? Exactly. Um, which which just further underlines uh, that, that the fact that Twitter is um, has an opinion. It is shaping, right? It is shaping the public square much more like the Washington Post or the New York Times um, than like, you know, uh, I don't know, like an internet service provider, for example, would be the, like the other end of that where there, there really isn't a, um, even though they are using they are. They do have their politics, and they are. But this is an expressive message that is explicitly shaping sort of political and cultural um, discourse. I thought that was that was interesting because, yeah, this is this is way overvalued for as a company, but as a method to influence culture, it's not overvalued. Right. Right. No. Exactly. So again, it might not be as profitable as it is powerful, but it is extremely powerful. And that's the thing with like to the extent that I'm optimistic, I do really think and we've talked about this before, it's entirely possible, and I don't know the likelihood of it, but it's entirely possible this cultural pain and discomfort that we've felt sort of squeezed into over the last half decade, if not more, um, depending on your life and, and where you come from, is an adjustment period that we're sort of w- waking up to the realities of, of rapid technological change um, and the cultural and political change that it can cause. And as a consequence of that, um, we have 
been in this period without sort of realizing we're in the fog of war. And so when you realize you're in the fog of war and you realize that, you know, you're in the middle of something really big, that's a helpful way to course correct and to understand that you have to do things, right? It's it's like diagnosing um, the actual ailment and not just treating the symptoms. Um, and so I, I think it's possible that our institutions, there will be enough sort of cultural support for the musks of the world to uh, retake these institutions and not even just ultra powerful people like Elon Musk, but it could just be, you know, happening in HR departments and, uh, you know, corporate conference rooms around the country, you know, you don't have to be a multi-billionaire to say, you know, next time somebody complains um, and wants to use a racist, anti-racist curricula in their HR training or in uh, a private school or whatever it is, people just start saying no. Um, and, you know, it, that sort of takes the wind out of this gen- rising generation of people who have been conditioned, as Inez, you talk about all the time, to see the world in a very dangerous way. And it just it takes the wind out of their sails. They lose the momentum and just sort of everyone falls back into sanity. But I, I don't I, I don't know. I, I just feel like that's highly unlikely. And the reason I remain pessimistic is because of Twitter itself. You know, you can restore free speech on Twitter, but it's only less than half the battle, I would say, when we have gamified our politics on this platform. We have gamified our culture on a, a platform that is literally run like a slot machine. Um, and there's nobody talking about getting rid of that. Uh, Elon Musk doesn't want to get rid of that. Nobody wants to get rid of that because it's addictive and it's bad for our mental health and it's bad for us as human beings. So we're not even having that conversation. And that's what worries me way more than anything. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm less concerned about that aspect of it than you are. And this is always the divide of, you know, how large a factor, because I I think we both agree that it is a large factor, but how large or determinative the technological aspect of this is. I I mean, I I tend to think, for example, that one of the reasons we've gamified politics, which I 100% agree that we have, I mean, everything seems in many ways to be a LARP, like this whole, I mean, I, I felt that really intensely on January 6th, right? Um, and I wrote about it, but but uh, how, you know, we're, we're, we see this, this was supposedly the worst terrorist in America, and his, his picture is, you know, flashing up on all of the, the TV screens. And it's like, literally a guy with um, with a headdress on and big horns and like they're really serious people like talking heads on <laughs> saying this guy is like this is this guy is dangerous right um <laughs> it's, there, there's a certain like absurdity aspect uh to all of this that i think is not necessarily driven by twitter although it's accelerated by twitter right or by social media more generally i, I tend to think it has to do with um, deeper questions of of meaning of of humanity, um, which actually this is one of the reasons that I I am not I'm I was surprised this happened. I think it's really great that it did, um, but ultimately, I mean, two questions. I guess one, I'm not sure Elon Musk is our champion, and two, and I'll go into detail on each one of these points. But one, I don't, I'm not convinced he's our champion, and and two. The whole notion that we would need like our our billionaire champion um, mm-hmm. to be able to uh, sort of push back against some of these fundamental transformations of American cultural norms and American way of life um, that that in itself speaks to the deep decay of our politics, right? Because these are ultimately political questions. And I'm not like, I am totally fine that Elon Musk, um, Elon Musk has billions and billions of dollars. Good for him. Like, um, 
I'm, I'm happy he's able to make those kinds of billions of dollars. And I'm happy that we live in a capitalist system that allows him to do that. Um, but at the same time, I don't like the total, uh, total melding of financial power and politics. Now, I accept that rich people are going to have outsized influence um, always, and they always have and in, in throughout our history. But the idea that something as fundamental as freedom of speech in the public square, and I truly think that you know social media is the equivalent of the public square today, even if it isn't legally, um, that the idea that, that our fundamental rights would be dependent on a billionaire, it's very much like the company town kind of aspect, right? It's, 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 I feel like all of us are now in a company town and we just hope that we have a champion among, you know, among the, the town owners. Um, that's not really a republic or a democracy. Um, so that, that aspect of it worries me. And then further, you know, I, I Look, I, I like the guy. I think he's really funny. Um, he's he's got a great sense of humor, and he's willing to spend billions and billions of dollars to back up his sense of humor, which really endears him to me in that sense. Um, but he has that utopian Silicon Valley view, right? Um, and that's that's why I think they got so censorious to begin with. Um, and and as I say many times, I grew up in Silicon Valley, so you know I kind of know how these people are, um, <laughs> how they think. Uh, I think they really genuinely in the 90s and early 2000s, they really thought if they connect the world, everyone is going to get along. We're going to enter a new era of of peace and prosperity um, where potentially we're not going to have to work as much because robots are going to do it for us. And we're all just going to sit around and think and um, <laughs> and enjoy each other's company and connect to each other in new ways. They really thought this was going to be this beautiful new era. And instead, they, they got people literally... Sh- flinging poop at each other right on all of these platforms um and which is what anyone who has read thomas soul or frankly the bible would have predicted (laughs) right it's 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 a matter of um an understanding of human nature yeah you know that the the crooked nothing built by the crooked timber will ever be made straight right um these kinds of insights are completely non-existent in Silicon Valley and I think completely non-existent in Elon Musk's thinking. He has a very positive view of the future. He has almost an ex- like sort of boundaryless view of what humanity is capable of. He doesn't have that constrained view, right? And and that's why ultimately I I, I tend to think that he um so one, it bothers me that we need a champion at all. And two, I'm not sure that he's our champion. I, I'm very happy he's doing this and I'm glad he's committed to freedom of speech and I think that's a good thing. Um And it's good to have somebody with billions and billions of dollars who's committed to that impulse. I don't think this solves, I I don't think this solves any of the larger problems. I'm still surprised it happened. I still find like it takes a little edge off my pessimism. Like maybe the institution and the institutional forces that you and I are always talking about are not quite as strong as we think they are. Because if they were, they would have stopped this from going through. Right. Is it a house of cards um, that that looks like a house, but is is built of cards. And so it it crumbles as soon as you blow on it. Um, I I think that may be true in certain cases. But I think, again, for the reasons that you just said, um, even talking about Elon Musk himself, this is somebody who's an ultra powerful billionaire um, and has some extremely, I think, disturbing ideas for the direction that humanity should go in um, and is working to kind of enact them. And it's interesting because he, I don't think that 
he okay so this is a guy whose businesses are built on the back of government subsidies who's extremely cozy with the chinese communist party because he has his tesla business um over there and he's now going to own what everybody on the right has been screaming for years as a publisher right twitter is a publisher um and so like and as i was saying it's not entirely dissimilar from jeff bezos snatching up the washington post um but i also think that without the the culture the cultural appetite for what Musk says he's going to do to Twitter, I don't know that he that Twitter would be worth what he paid for it, right? So if he didn't think that the culture wanted Twitter to be better and have a more free speech sort of climate, then there's no way he would have paid $42 billion for it because it, it, that's not what the company is worth. Um, and it's certainly not what the company is worth outside of that environment. So maybe if there's a way that I could take the edge off your pessimism in that sense, I do yeah. think he is reacting to powerful cultural forces and wouldn't just sort of be able to be on the whims of a billionaire without those, um, which is good because it means there's still something um, working here. But he does have Neuralink. He has all of these sort of like, and as a saying, utopian, right? They, they really think of it as a utopia. I think if you go back and read what they were talking about in the early aughts and the way they were talking about the future, it's very clear this was sincere and you would know this better than uh, me and us because you literally grew, grew up there, but it was very clearly sincere, but it's, it's sort of, as you say, uh, or as you suggest godless. Um, and this is one of the th biggest things that bothers me about um, the platitudes of our culture. It's like we revere the phrase. I mean, self-proclaimed cr Christians revere the, the maxim that the moral arc of the universe is long, but it, it bends towards justice. No, it doesn't. Or when I hear conservatives say, people, I believe in that people are inherently good. No, they're not. <laughs> people are fallen. We live in a fallen world. Um, and anything that is sort of built by humans, be it, uh, you know, a, a corporation or a government is susceptible to all of those things. And you can have a system like ours that uh, understands that and has safeguards, um, which we used to understand. But I, I, again, this is where we're arriving at the, the pessimism about postmodernism. These institutions are ultimately uh, built on sand. Their foundation is in sand and not in stone. And so while we may be able to sort of cling by the skin of our teeth uh, through these times um, and maybe we're treading water until someone throws us a raft and people decide, you know, to, to be pro human again. Um, we're heading into a, a really, I think, dangerous place and these free speech conversations are good. And maybe this is something that starts the tide, you know, starts turning the tide and we go back in a better direction. I don't know, but the fact that we're not even talking about, the, the glaring problems with Twitter, which is a dopamine device, that to me is like, okay, well, we're not even talking about the real issue here. Um, well, as, as, as a fallen human, um, <laughs> the one thing about this that has been just undeniably enjoyable is the like screaming that is going up around it. And my favorite of which um, I just want to reference something, uh, you know, Obviously, you and I and Rachel Boulevard and, and Vivek Ramaswamy and all these people have always have been talking for a long time about why, you know, the 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 build your own Internet thing is not um, is not really a solution. Right. Uh, but Robert Robert Reich tweeted yesterday. <laughs> oh, boy. Musk and his apologists say if consumers don't like what he does with Twitter, they can go elsewhere. 
but where else would consumers go to post short messages that can reach millions of people other than Twitter? The free market, quote unquote, increasingly reflects the demands of big money. <laughs> he, and they are already talking about how they need nonprofit um, competitors. It's uh, unbelievable. It, it's just it it is really enjoyable, right, to see um, for once the table get turned a little bit. And they're not even worried about being banned, right? right? They're not no no leftist. It's not yet entered their minds the possibility that they could be kicked off of this platform, right? They're upset because like people who disagree with them won't be kicked off the platform. That alone, it hasn't. I haven't seen anybody worried about um, left wing accounts being banned, right, or woke accounts being banned. Um, oh, that's a good point. It, it's 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 really funny. I, I'm I'm really enjoying it. I can't I can't say that I'm not. But um, you know, it it. I think I'm I'm. Oh, that's my dog. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I I think. I've always been optimistic about where the American people are. Um, and I've been so pessimistic about the power of institutions to override that. Right. Um, that's why I'm so surprised this went through. Not because I, I, I yeah, you're right that the underlying um, purchase wouldn't make any sense unless he believed that there was this like damned up consumer interest in having a platform like this. Um and so, I mean, to, so much so that they were people were going to these very like sort of minor and 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 not as well done platforms um, as Twitter, right? Um, I personally find all of those those things. I think ghettoizing ourselves is not a solution, um, and and that's what those platforms really are. I mean, I had I had some accounts. I had a parlor account, but like, um, it is first of all, it's boring if you're only talking to your own, um, <laughs> and second of all, it's it's. It is, it is in some fundamental way completely um, sort of tangential to the actual mainstream discourse in the same way that having like, uh, you know, un until you reach a certain amount of audience and size and, and, and in some ways most important interaction with the mainstream, um, you're not really entering the conversation in a way that's anything but sort of uh, self-indulgent, I think. Um, so for example, I think the fact that the New York Times had to run a profile on Chris Rufo, right, that that shows the fact that he, even if it's it's an unfair one, or although it's less unfair than it could have been, but um, which is why all the left has started to complain about it because they said it made him look too good. Yes. Uh, but uh, no, when, when the New York Times has to pay attention, this was always the Breitbart model, right? We're going to do, or even Project Veritas today, right? We're going to do the reporting you're not going to do. Uh, we are going to do it in such a way that it's impossible eventually for you to ignore. Um, you're going to have to cover it in a biased way, probably, but you're going to have to let it into that mainstream conversation. I don't think those platforms, the like the getters and the the parlors and stuff, they haven't, and for reasons that Rachel Bovard can explain, right? Um, they, they have been artificially capped in a million ways. Um, but still, I think ghettoizing ourselves is not not necessarily the answer. But I, there is this demand, clearly. Um, I think you're right that it enables this, this kind of move from Musk. Still, it surprises me because I, I see all of these battles very much as small D democratic battles. And, hmm. you know, I'm, I'm not a um, unreserved small D democrat, right? I, I take all of the founders critiques of, um, you know, mob rule of unchecked, sort of passion of the majority that that tyranny is just uh democracy is just 51 percent um 
you know, peeing in the cornflakes of the 49% and the memorable, memorable phrase of, um, gosh, who said that? Um, he's, he's, I think that was Thomas now. Jefferson. Don't, no, I think it was Joni Goldberg. Um, no, that was, that was definitely Thomas Jefferson. No, peeing in the cornflakes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> that, that's actually, uh, it, it's in the footnotes of the declaration. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. No, but I, I, you know, these are deep critiques of democracy. Democracy is not a perfect system. It, it does produce tyranny of the majority. There are all kinds of counter-majoritarian forces put in our constitution for that reason. Uh, but I think right now our problem is not enough democracy um, and not too much, right? It may, be, it may be the case that sometimes there's too much democracy. In fact, some of California's structures that were built by the progressives are wildly too much like you can amend the california constitution with 50 percent plus one right so like literally everything is in the constitution there's there's an amendment about how many rounds you can have in a boxing match there's like you know there's there's just pages and pages and pages of uselessness and more fundamentally if you take everything to a plebiscite right there there is a representative function you're supposed to channel the will of the people this is what our elected representatives are supposed to do allegedly they they really um don't do this but you're supposed to channel and refine it Right. Um, if, if, for example, if you put everything up to a plebiscite vote, people will vote for more goodies for themselves and they'll vote that they don't want to pay for them. Yeah. Right. Um, and so there, there is a function of representative democracy. All of this to say that I'm not a, a untrammeled Democrat. Um, but it seems to me that our problem is that institutions have way too much power and sort of the the people too little. Right. From the fact that the courts, which are properly beyond the reach of democracy, um, except in the most indirect way possible. But the fact that they have expanded their role into, um, you know, all, all of these uh, cultural issues that are not uh, in, in the original understanding of the Constitution, the fact that they have inserted themselves into politics for so long and have taken on such a huge role, that's a problem. On the corresponding side, the fact that, you know, unelected bureaucrats make a huge percentage of the political decisions that aren't made by the courts, right? If you put those two things together, we have so many decisions in the political sphere that are not made directly by the people that we elect. Um, and that that is a huge problem, but it goes beyond government, right? It, we now have unelected corporations that are wielding their financial power um, in order to, for example, shape the voting laws of Georgia or shape the... Um, shape the, uh, you know, education laws in Florida. And that's actually where I wanted to go next, because we have actually had, in some sense, we've had two huge victories um, in, in the in the last few days. And that's that's really a remarkable thing, given, you know, how pessimistic I think both of us are and how, how um, we feel on our heels so often. Um, but we've had two huge victories, the second of which, after Elon Musk purchasing Twitter, um, is the fact that Florida... Um, Florida went after Disney. Right? <laughs> so uh, the, the Florida legislature on on Governor DeSantis's um, pushing or, or request uh, has has decided to uh, drop the um, special carve out, the special district that Disney has had in order to have its park in Orlando. Um, I believe that's Disney World. But as any of you who follow me on Twitter know, I am not a Disney fan and never <laughs> never have been before all this uh, political stuff. So I, I don't remember what which park is in Orlando, but there is one. It's big. Um, and they have some very, very special, uh, nice tax deal uh, for that entire district. 
And the Florida legislature decided that they do not want to extend that special privilege to Disney anymore, which famously um, in, in the past few weeks, Disney has come out uh, in favor of, of um, or rather against the what the media calls the don't say yay bill, which is really just um, a bill that defines uh, when uh, and, and in what manner uh, sexual conversations, including uh, conversations about gender identity, uh, can take place and completely bars them in ages K through three, um, which seems very reasonable. And then um, thereafter, uh, request that they be done in an age appropriate manner, uh, which, of course, is, is uh, a phrase that agencies um, will largely define. So that should be interesting in itself. Um, nevertheless, this is a very, very popular bill. Um, and another point of, of, uh, of hope, I think, uh, on this is the hopeful podcast. Uh, <laughs> another point of hope is that um, I really think this is one of those instances where people have completely seen through the misleading narrative that the media decided to run with. I think initially, a lot of people agreed that this was a quote unquote, don't say gay bill. Um, and because DeSantis fought back, and because they had to cover him fighting back because he was the governor and he was making, you know, press statements and so on, even if they, they you know, sandwiched his statements in between a bunch of bias, um, you know, people, I think because he fought back, people started to actually read the bill. They started to actually be skeptical about whether or not it was a quote unquote, don't say gay bill. Um, and I really, every poll shows it not only in Florida, but across the country, this, this, this bill is popular. The substance of it is popular. And most encouragingly of all, people are not, they, they aren't, uh, they, they have saw, seen through the, the mainstream narrative on this. They, and and I, I wonder what that does. Actually, let's start with this whole, you know, sort of setup that has taken me a minute. Um, let's start here because, because you are such a media critic. What does that say? I mean, is this a herald for the, the brittleness of, of the media narrative? Because it really seems like it totally broke on this issue. Yeah, I was surprised by how it broke. Um, and I, I actually think it's a statement probably on to like it's been uh, I'm trying to think of the right analogy. But basically, the new media and old media have been in this tug of war for you know 15 years, if not a little bit longer than that. And it, it shows that I think for the first time, the new media might actually be sort of winning the tug of war. That's not to say that they've won the tug of war, but that in the, the power struggle, the balance has shifted slightly to new media's side in these cases where like this one was such a massive overreach on the part of the uh, main so-called mainstream media. I don't think that they like they are so used to just being able to push people around and to say what they want without getting challenged because, hey, it's just a few people reading the Federalist that are going to get, you know, different information or the, the Fox News crowd that's going to get different information. And of course, that's not the case um, anymore because of the entire like TikTok now has influencers who are breaking this down and, and popping up in unsuspecting people's algorithms. Um, and so I think it, it probably does show that. And it was a good example also of how they overreached to the point of just infuriating people. Like people were, this bill does not say that. It's, it doesn't even have, like DeSantis is lying about how the bill never said the word gay. I mean, this was all 
like it, it was such a massive overreach that um, I think it, it does show what you're what you're saying. Um, and again, it, it does. I, I do lump that in together with uh, with Musk and with one more thing, which is the RNC refusing. Uh, this came out a couple of weeks ago, refusing to participate in the presidential debate commission's uh, circus, basically, which is something that people would have thought unthinkable before Donald Trump, but should have been fathomable for years this should have happened so long ago um but all of these things slowly happening it's spring you know it feels maybe like it's metaphorically spring too um but uh, the the real challenge i think to what you were saying and as to quickly go back on the the point about corporate power because it's it it, it affects all of this um the libertarians would rebut what you just said about Musk and corporate power or, or Disney. Disney's a great example. They would say, well, if, if people are upset, if customers are upset with Disney, they can stop uh, shopping at Disney or they can stop investing in Disney. Um, if investors don't want to, you know, invest in Wells Fargo or whatever company because they said something woke, then they can pull their, they can pull their money out of it. And uh, the question is just, no, like, and go where? Somewhere else that's doing the exact same thing. Um, right. And so the, the Reich tweet was so funny, right? right? Like, as in, I've been using the phrase cultural collusion, but I, I'm sure yep. there's a better one out there. But that that's really what it is. There is a monopoly in the sense of um, political perspective. Well, and right? it's, anti, it's, it's anti sort of... Uh, constitutional or extra constitutional um, th this monopoly is and that's where it's you get into this question where it's like well what the like the, the what do you want people to do and Rachel made this point in bright this morning actually about a football coach who was privately praying on the sidelines up in Washington State she was like well okay so what do you think people should do if they want to just exercise their faith quietly and, and privately in a public space do you think they should have to sue um, and put aside 10 years of their life and their reputation and their family's safety and sue. That's what people should have to do. Like, that's not the country that we should live in. Um, but I do think because the, a lot of these massive corporations, the way that our investment structure works, it gives them so much political and cultural power because it's, it's anti-democratic in the market sense that like our, our market doesn't feel particularly free anymore. And so where you're supposed to be able to vote with your dollar, um, or your feet or whatever, um, that power just doesn't really exist anymore. And that I think has allowed a lot of corporations like Disney to steamroll our culture. Yeah, um, I definitely think that's that's true. I, I, I guess you're refining something that I was thinking of in the beginning of the podcast where it's always clearly been true that extremely wealthy people and extremely wealthy corporations have had an influence on our politics. I, I don't necessarily, I think this is sort of inevitable. I think this is uh, an attempts to... Um, Attempts to completely eliminate it are fanciful. Um, it, it will always be the case that money will buy you a certain amount of access and influence um, in the in the political process. And trying to just like um, with redistricting, where where like people, I just remember this is my one regretted vote. Right, I, I voted <laughs> in favor of re, uh, redistricting commission in California on the the sort of naive assumption that actually if we get like citizens to, to sit on this commission, it'll make sense. Um, and we won't have these horrifically gerrymandered districts. Of course, that's not true. You can't you can't take politics out of politics. All you do is remove it from democratic control in doing things like that. 
Um, but what is, is I think we have two different things that are, are new in one, at least quasi new and one really new, um, in, in this relationship between, you know, finance corporations and power and political influence, right? One is, is the fact that, um, you know, we have enormously powerful multinational corporations that are not completely mm-hmm. dependent on the U.S. market. So that's or the U.S. workforce. Right. So um, that that is the globalist change that has happened. Um, and the second one is that we've seen, you know, back in, in the, you know, in the 19th century, we, we also had the titans of industry or the robber barons, depending on which side you're uh, on of that <laughs> question, that historical question. Right. But they actually had wildly different views. Um, so in a sense, they checked each other, right? Um, there's always been this level of influence, but it wasn't all going in the same direction. And to the extent that it went in the same direction, it was on specifically some matter of business, right? And so that's, you know, partially why, why TR, you know, did the trust busting and all of this, but it, it's somehow uh, less pernicious to me, um, to imagine that that businesses would agree on a matter of business because then you can either countervail it or not. Like it's sort of a clear, um, a clear interest. If, if they're exercising mm-hmm. that interest against the public good, um, then there will be some kind of reaction from the political sphere that interest will be reined in, right? Um, this, is, this is much more pernicious in a way. And I think it has a lot to do with the professionalization and credentialing that has happened what we have is and not just, you know, a few rock'em sock'em billionaires at the top who have a lot of influence, but this 20, 30% of people um, who are overwhelmingly have the same worldview, not just when it comes to business and how they make money, but on everything else, on on cultural issues, on things that have nothing to do um, with with how or, or how much money they make. Um, so in a sense, they're, they, they are like, they have a class interest but that class interest is not related to their class, except in so far yes. as they have the power to in- enforce it. Um, so in, in a way, this completely breaks Marxism, but <laughs> <laughs> you, would, you, would, you would think, right, um, that a class interest would have to do something directly with their class. And it, this, this one doesn't. This one has to do with shared values that have nothing to do with how much money or how, much, or how they make their money, right? So um, it's, it's, that's, that's really what scares me in all of this is, is this collusion. And that's why I think Elon Musk breaking from the fold is, is really important. Um, because it, it the, these f- folks largely agree so tightly that it, it cuts off the possibility that you're talking about, Emily, it cuts off the possibility of a countervailing force, either as a customer or as a voter, either way in either sphere, right? If you're a customer and you don't like how woke Disney is, well, good luck because Hulu and Netflix are also, you know, they're also uh, woke, and most of the people who run theme parks, although Dollywood, I guess, is, is one of the exceptions, um, most of the people who provide that kind of experience, they're also using their money for woke causes, right? Um, and they're using the company for, for woke causes. The, the easiest way to see this, I think, is in airlines, because there is a limited number of them, right? I mean, how many are there? Uh, domestic American Airlines, American Airlines, Delta, um, you know, Southwest, Alaska Air, I'm missing, United whatever. Uh, there's, there's a handful American, of them, right? Yeah. Yeah. American. And there, there's a handful of them, right? There's, there's a limited number of domestic uh, providers in America. Every single one of them was on, as far as I know, um, I didn't check for Alaska air. So that, that I can double check after that, but every other one that I listed um, was on that, that equality act uh, letter. 
So in favor of changing the definition of sex in federal civil rights law to include gender identity, which is a very radical piece of legislation, right? So where are you going to go? You don't like Delta's woke politics. Where are you going to go as a customer? So you have no check on that. Right. And then correspondingly in, in the realm of politics, if these, these people who, this professional managerial class who have largely the same opinions and largely went through the same schools, they control the agencies that make a lot of your law, well, then you also don't have a democratic control over them, right? You, you don't vote for them. It's not like... Um, yeah. so, 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 so your democratic control is supposed to be your ability to vote in the marketplace. Right. And yeah. that's exactly right. And so that's what the libertarians will say. They will say, absolutely, there's democratic control on these major corporations. Um, and then you have to ask, first of all, how? What is it, right? Like, wh- how are activist shareholders really um, able to push back on this? Um, and, and Inez, this is like... so. There was, what was this, like three weeks ago now, IWF launched the new uh, education, what was the Center for Education Freedom, Education Freedom Center? Yeah, Education the, Freedom Center. That's it. Okay. The right order of the of the words. Um, and as Inez was speaking, and actually Betsy DeVos spoke, and when Inez got up, um, because she's taking a huge role in this project, I, I was thinking how daunting it is and how uh, for the entire you know month since that event i've just been thinking uh, you know this is so much bigger than anybody realizes this is this is like the roots of this are so incredibly deep we can do so many things um and they're basically going to be trimming weeds on the surface and and we're just scratching the dirt um when the roots are are so much deeper and that's what you guys are working on is the the deep 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 roots but we can talk about the marketplace and we can talk about pushback and all of these things but if the will of the country to to be the United States of America in a, in a sort of constitutional sense um, no longer exists, then uh, none of it seems to matter. <laughs> and that's why it's like, again, we can have these conversations and we should try. This is what I wrote about Musk. Like we should try to set these norms to get back to better norms right now while we can, while we still have the will um, and while we still have that uh, memory of what it was like, the muscle memory uh, of what it was like. While we still have that, let's go. Let's get back to these norms. Let's set them. But I don't know that it'll be, I, I don't know that the time hasn't already passed to do that. Well, that's 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 what scares me is, so um, you, you mentioned the Education Freedom Center, obviously a lot of my work in education. The, the premise of a lot of my work is always this this positive side of my like sort of pessimistic worldview, which is that, Actually, the American people are fairly unreconstructed, right? Um, right. It's actually it, it's actually a remarkable thing, right? The fact that Donald Trump got elected in 2016 is a remarkable thing because every institution went balls to the wall against this, right? Right, and it shows whatever you're thinking about Donald Trump that that shows that the American people are, on the whole, you know, not bought into the same ideology that their elites are. Right. Um, that doesn't make them, you know, sort of conservatives or fellow travelers um, with with you or I or, or any particular uh, sort of commentator or writer. Um, so we should be careful not to confuse those two things, because I, I don't know, for me, um, the, the biggest reminder of 2016 is like, I, I, I really thought after the Tea Party that I had the majority of the American people sort of rowing in the same direction as me. And I realized, no, 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 these folks like they supported the Tea Party for their own reasons. They think about these things differently. Um, so I think it's easy to fall into that trap. But nevertheless, I, I I think that broadly speaking, 
the you know the great american middle class and and the working class of america are not at all on on board with the trajectory the elites want to take us down um at some point they will be right the mm-hmm. long march through the of the uh, through the institutions works it works especially in education and yeah. what we're seeing is that people especially younger millennials um but really the all of the millennial generation but particularly younger millennials and then gen z um people i i hate this like sort of libertarian argument oh kids don't you know kids don't learn um they don't really learn uh, anything in in school anyway like including this this narrative um they don't learn they don't actually imbibe anything and actually they're just going to rebel against it right they're <laughs> just going to rebel against it um and yeah that's true for the the small percentage of contrarians who are usually saying these things right, right. <laughs> but the overwhelming majority of people they do accept the fundamental premises and narratives that they were taught in school um now that doesn't mean they remember every aspect of it, but you don't have to. Like fundamentally, the narrative: America is bad. It's been bad since its inception. Um, you know, America's racist. Sex doesn't exist. Right? Um, these kinds of things are actually really easy to imbibe and repeat. They don't require a lot of like academic effort. Right? Um, the, the fact is that it's working. Right? Mm-hmm. If you look at every single poll, um, and Eric Kaufman has some great work on this, and mm-hmm. I had him on to talk about it. But um, in every poll, what you see is that actually. Indoctrination works. Um, yep. And so I, I agree with you. I think we have a very narrow window. We may have passed it already, but the premise of everything, all the solutions that I put forward um, from, from school choice, even stuff about universities, right? The, the fact that we should draw down student loans or, or attach considerations, uh, political considerations to student loans to try to force universities out of their, their current track when they are so dependent on public money. The fact that we should use public money, essentially my solutions are always small d democratic right push more money and power to people they will use it differently than the elites have um that's what school choice is to me and and it's pushing more money and more power and more corresponding leverage to people on a a mass scale um then and i think they'll use that money and that choice very differently than elites have used it and i think positive right but at some point that will not be true anymore right at some point um we will have enough converted that school choice won't matter because what giving parents money um, will just mean that they go ahead and, and use it at completely, you know, woker and woker institutions. Yeah. Right? I think that's they totally themselves true. have already bought into this ideology. So, so that I, whether we've reached that tipping point, at least with education, I don't think so. I think the, the fact that uh, there has been such an enormous backlash uh, and that the fact that that backlash extends not just into moderates, but extends into Democrats. Right. Um, I, I think that's we haven't reached that tipping point yet, but it, this is really generational mm-hmm. right now. Parents mm-hmm. of school age children are Gen X and elder millennial. Right. Yeah. Um, when it's younger millennials and Gen Z who are the parents of school age children. School choice will operate very differently. And and the hope is yeah. the hope to to keep this on the hopeful track. The hope is so unlike that by implementing it now, right? Um, it is early enough that at least we close a pipeline on the other end, right? That yeah. that we have this generation and a half of indoctrinated Americans. We probably aren't going to change their minds if, if people are truly bought into like the woke stuff. Um, 
on a mass scale anyway. I'm not saying it's individually impossible to change their minds, but um, you know, we have a generation of a, and a half of people who are sort of bought into this, but this is a, a large public. Um, they will be an interest, but not the interest. If we close the pipeline, if we gut the institutions now, we close the pipeline, we build new pipelines, new institutions, then these folks will be a minority. Yeah. And they won't control the political process. But that that's that's a gamble. And I don't I don't know if we've gone so far and we've created so many of these folks that that that's impossible, but I don't see really any other way forward. I mean, there's there's not really any other way forward in in any kind of of um small L liberal or democratic sense. And I'm not interested in, you know, I'm not interested in living under Franco. So, um I mean, yeah, that's 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 the question. That's a terrifying that's the terrifying time clock that we're on. We're on, we're definitely on borrowed time and we have to think about it that way. We have to think about it. What changes can we make now that are institutional and enduring so that we can digest this minority that we've already created this incredibly powerful minority? How do we make sure that they're a minority and that they don't control everything even as a minority? Um, so that, that, those are the way that I always think about these questions, but I, I can't let you go without um, bringing up this one piece in the cut. Um, yes. Which is very much also on sort of things that we like to talk about, right? It's called Losing My Ambition. Um, it's by Emil Niazi. Um, and it, it is talking about uh, what I think is a very real phenomenon that post-pandemic, this goes along with the, the vibe shift and the death <laughs> of the girl boss and all of these things that we're really, we really are seeing a shift even on um, sort of the, the feminist, um, sort of feminist left of the relationship that women have to um, ambition, career, um, and sacrifice vis-a-vis family. So um, what did you think of this article? And, uh, you know, do you think that it portends some larger shift in the culture? Or do you think that it's just sort of as many of these uh, kind of first person, <laughs> first person uh, confessional essays are, is just part of the larger sort of narcissistic um, navel gazing, whatever uh, trend in in our um, essay writing culture, let's say. No, I think this actually does portend a change in the culture. Um, and I think it has a lot to do with millennial women growing up. Um, and that's what is we're sort of seeing the arc of women um, struggle to exist in the arc of these sort of post-sexual revolution generation. And that's millennial women. Um, but, you know, humanity wins out, which and by humanity, I just mean uh, evolution and the, the sort of innate desire to reproduce and to... Uh, couple um and to to nurture and all that good stuff so what's what's funny about this essay which i loved is that it's so unself like the the lack of self-awareness is delicious um because it's really in a sad way instructive and or i think insightful into the sort of culture that like this is surprising to this woman that because our norms for millennial women were so different that she thinks it's almost a this act of rebellion um or this this act of i don't know like ra- like it's radical it's she's acting like it's it's sort of radical to decide that you don't need to be the consummate global citizen who is saving the world one tweet at a time 
you can be a homemaker who takes care of children and you might actually be way, 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 way happier. Um, and, and so I think this is goes completely to the last conversation we were having. Um, and I try not to be so 30,000 feet sometimes because like I, I need to be more in the weeds on policy and all of that stuff. But for me, sometimes I just look at this and I'm like, we are fighting about humanism. Like we're fighting a war postmodern anti-human like we're we're human beings it's not political but just like human beings are are fighting uh to live in sort of like a humanist world and not an anti-humanist world and human beings are just like sort of winning these victories here and there um and again it's not to say like we have we are fallen we have a lot of bad instincts as humans and it's the job of our society to temper those and our communities to temper those and our relationships to temper those as best we possibly can to to live in uh you know the most peace that we can but um you know th this this idea that we should all be i don't know titans of of industry and you don't need any of these like the trappings of of human life to be happy it's not right um because it's not what we're designed and built to do and so i just see so many of these battles as being just fundamentally um about f fighting the dystopia really um it's like we're, everyone is turning away soma um or turning away the blue pill um uh, you know in in all of these these fights that's what it really feels like to me and this article um shows i think how that human side is really fighting in millennial women um i think we saw it in the early days of the pandemic where the trend was self-sufficiency um you know baking bread and uh pickling things and doing all that good stuff um i, I really think that it, it it shows that you know we're we're fighting to be happy we're fighting to uh do what we're we want to what our bodies and our minds want us to do what actually makes people happy and uh this is a good example of it's like oh well it's kind of winning <laughs> despite all of the despite all of the conditioning um in the the institutional media academia everything at hollywood it's winning <laughs> um well the the upside is always that you can't suppress nature forever um that's right what's the horace quote you can it's one of my favorite quotes ever you can chase nature out with a pitchfork and yet she keeps hurrying back uh the bad well, news is it can take a hundred years <laughs> one of the things so, so one of the things that gen z is most terrified about is climate change and this is like polling shows it is like it, it feels like an existential weight on their shoulders it has been psychologically traumatic for them to grow up in a world where they're being told constantly that you know humanity is going to be in grave peril um, in a matter of years, unless they step up and they stop something. Um, and again, it's just this idea that man is, is so much more powerful than man is, or that man needs to be so much more powerful than man is. And it, it's not fun. It's exhausting. And it's also predicated on a lie that we can sort of turn the tides. Um, and we can't. So it's just, yeah, I think that's needs really to relax generational. That's really generational bread. too. That's so generational as well. Like, I think that that a lot of people think this is just virtue signaling, right? As in, and I think it is for people, mo more or less, obviously there are lots of exceptions on both sides, but like more or less people over 35 
they kind of know this is BS, right? Yeah. And I'm not just talking about the climate change, you know, sort of alarmism or, um, but just generally this entire woke stuff, like they, they know that, you know, Leah Thomas is winning because he's a man. Um, swimming not all of women. them. But, but what I keep trying to get across to even some, I think some conservatives is, yeah, you don't know. Younger folks are very sincere in this. It's, it's a very sincerely held religious conviction. Yeah. Um, and, and so it's, it's, um, they, they really do see what the, the, the uh, Winston um, 1984 metaphor, right? They, they really do see the, the, um, the party holds up four fingers and they see five, right? Like, um, they, 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 it is a very real possibility. And if you if you read like literally anything about history, you know that people um, can be convinced of of these kinds of ideologies that they they do can sincerely believe in them, and and they do, which is really a much larger problem, right? And I think that's kind of why we're seeing some of these hopeful defections, and mostly from older millennials and Gen X who are saying, "Okay, enough. I'll go along with this BS for a little bit because I want to be a nice person, and that's the virtue signaling part, right? I'm a good person because I go along with these kinds of ideas." But at some point, a certain percentage of people were like, "No, I, I know this isn't true, right? right. I, I'm not going to actually have, as you say, the existential weight of the fact that the quote unquote fact that the world is going to end in in seven years." Um, because of climate change on my shoulders, like, you know, so at some point, uh, you're seeing these defections from essentially the older, the folks who who were virtue signaling, but now are are saying, okay, this is there's a lot that's not virtuous about this worldview. And, and I no longer care, I'm going to be courageous, I no longer care what what people say, what kind of bad person people say I am for, yeah. for speaking the obvious truths. On the younger side of the spectrum, they don't see these as truths. They right. they have blinded themselves to the they truth, don't see in truth. A fundamental way. Yeah. Um, they don't believe truth exists except subjectively. And on top of that is layered an ideology that tells them very non-subjectively what truth is and has absolutely no epistemic uh, sort of humility about it. And that doesn't make any logical sense, but it doesn't matter. Um, anyway, so we're an ending even even our very uh, optimistic podcast on a somewhat pessimistic note. Um, although we had more optimism to uh, to go for in in this episode than many, I do think that there there is a larger vibe shift happening. Um, the question is whether it can be converted into actual strategic victories that'll allow us to to live with this um, generational handoff in a way that doesn't destroy everything that we hold dear. So, Emily, an any last words here? I was just going to say it's it's an accurate dose of pessimism, though, because that's really what it all comes down to. If if you have a generation of people who aren't just going to go along to get along because they they don't want to be accused of being intolerant or hateful, but actually fundamentally don't they've been conditioned to not believe in truth and to believe that truth is relative. Um, then you're heading into a dark and dangerous place. And so we can fix these institutions right now as best we as best we can and set norms and show them the way that it can be done and that things can be better. But, um, you know, you need them to actually buy that. And I don't know if we live in that world anymore. Or you need to just take them out of power and outvote them. But... Uh, thanks, Emily, for, as always, for, for coming on. We do these um, After Dark episodes. If, if uh, anyone doesn't remember from exactly 59 minutes ago, um, we do these After Dark episodes uh, every every month. At the end of every month, um, the last episode of the month is me and Emily talking about the issues that we find relevant in in the news. Um, so thanks again, Emily, for, for uh, coming on High Noon. Thank you, Inez. 
And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman, including After Dark, is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to inez.stepman at iwf.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.